I'm blameless, the truth we're preaching And lies I won't well believe in No one ever wins When the goal is to settle the score go to Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs 3, and look in verse 5. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. And this is what we're going to be looking at today, is, is the paths of our lives. Uh, in the Bible, the term straight path means a path of goodness, a path of righteousness, a path of holiness, as opposed to a crooked path, which has the connotation of being a path of wickedness and evil. So God says, trust in God with your entire heart and don't lean to your own understanding. What that means is don't try to figure it out on your own. Go to him and acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Go to Psalm chapter 16. You know, when, when we get right down to it, the Christian walk is a pretty easy walk. It's just trusting in God and trusting that his way is the best way. I have all kinds of thoughts in my heart on the best way of doing things, but it's only when I yield to God's way that I really see the best in life. And that's just a, one of those truisms that we know from the Bible. Psalm chapter 16, look in verse 8. It says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and the eternal pleasures, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So God makes known to us the paths of life. Okay? Go to Psalm chapter 37. Look at verse 23. It says, If the Lord delights in a man's way, he will make his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Isn't that great? That's a great promise. But you'll notice that it's conditional. It's conditional that if the Lord delights in a man's way, he will make his steps firm. So you can derive from that, infer from that, that if the Lord is not happy with your way, uh, he cannot, he won't make your steps firm. So it behooves us to find out what the right way is and stay on it. Go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And look at verse 104. It says, I gain understanding from thy precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And that's the truth of Scripture, that as we get to know God and we get to know his ways and we become accustomed to him, we start to love his way and we hate every wrong path. Turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35. And look at verse 8. Isaiah 35, 8. It says, And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. 
It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. So today we're going to be talking about the path of life. God's provided for each of us a path. It's the right path of life. And it's through his spirit and through his word that God is able to guide us on that path. Of course, we have an enemy who endeavors to mislead us and to get us to follow wrong paths. And there are many of them. And if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've seen this happen to yourself as well as others, right? Where you're moving down the right path and then you're on the wrong path. And you're thinking to yourself, how did I get myself here? And with a humble heart, you went back to the right path. The nice thing about it is, is that if you are on the wrong path, God doesn't give up on you, right? Remember that God will, you know, the Lord was teaching that the shepherd will leave the 99 sheep and go after that one sheep that has gone astray. So the question becomes, how do we know if we're on the right path? That's a pretty good question. You know, throughout my Christian experience, I guess I've been a Christian for about 35 years now, uh, I've met many people who have falsely arrived at the conclusion that if, well, if I hang out with this group of people, then, then I'll be on the right path. Well, that's not it. Not it at all. There are many that hold the view that, well, if I hold certain doctrinal beliefs, then my orthodoxy on these positions will keep me on the right path. That's not true either. You can talk all the right talk and be on the wrong path, all right? You know, last Wednesday night, I, um, I was feeling a little low, and uh, I had a woman who uh, I work with. She's a Christian, and she goes to a church in town, and she suggested that I come by to her church. Uh, it's a, um, they have a worship service on Wednesday night. So I said, sure, I'll go. And I enjoyed it. But I, during the whole process, I felt myself wrestling with a few things. Um, as my tendency is, when I go into a new church, I start off with kind of a critical eye, and it borders on fault-finding, and it's not good. I think that we need to be have healthy skepticism, but there's a difference between being skeptical and being critical. And, you know, so that's something that I wrestle with. And the interesting thing was, is I wasn't there to be critical. I was there to be blessed. I was, you know, I had some burdens that I, I wanted to just spend time with some believers and enjoy myself. But I was struggling with this whole notion of, you know, checking out their doctrine and everything else. And so that, that was going on. They had great music. They had great worship. Um, it was a young audience. They packed these people in. It was incredible. Uh, the audience was enthusiastic. Uh, the message was decent, although I wasn't really super moved spiritually, but I enjoyed it. And the thought occurred to me several times, how do I determine whether the religious experience that I was experiencing was genuine or not? And especially with this whole struggle that was going on within me of, on the one hand, being a little little critical more than I thought or more than I ought to be, and also just wanting to enjoy myself and, and not be critical at all. So the next day, I got a text from a buddy of mine, Mike Tomberlin, many of you know him. He sent me a text and asked me if I had read this certain paper called How to Try the Spirits. It was an awesome paper. 
And I couldn't stop reading it. It was so very apropos to what I was thinking the night before. So today in fellowship, I'm going to read this paper to you. In my mind, this is a fundamental lesson on discipleship. And I would encourage each of you to go through and study your copy and digest it and make it your own. Okay? So this is the paper, How to Try Spirits, How to Try These Spirits. It says, these are times that try men's souls. The Spirit has spoken expressly that in latter times, some should depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with hot irons. Those days are upon us, and we cannot escape them. We must triumph in the midst of them, for such is the will of God concerning us. Strange as it may seem, the danger today is greater for the fervent Christian than for the lukewarm and the self-satisfied. The seeker after God's best things is eager to hear anyone who offers a way by which he can obtain them. He longs for some new experience, some elevated view of truth, some operation of the Spirit that will raise him above the dead level of religious mediocrity that he sees all around him. And for this reason, he is ready to give a sympathetic ear to the new and the wonderful in religion, particularly if it is presented by someone with an attractive personality and a reputation for superior godliness. Now, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, has not left his flock to the mercy of the wolves. He has given us scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and natural powers of observation, and he expects us to avail ourselves of their help constantly. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, said Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Beloved, believe not every spirit, wrote John, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, 1 John 4.1. Beware of false prophets, our Lord warned which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, Matthew 7:15. And then he added the word by which they may be tested. You shall know them by their fruits. From this it is plain not only that there shall be false spirits abroad endangering our Christian lives, but that they may be identified and known for what they are. And of course, once we become aware of their identity and learn their tricks, their power to harm us is gone. It is my intention to set forth here a method by which we may test the spirits and prove all things religious and moral that come to us or are brought or offered to us by anyone. And while dealing with these matters, we should keep in mind that not all religious vagaries are the work of Satan. The human mind is capable of plenty of mischief without any help from the devil. Some persons have a positive genius for getting confused and will mistake illusion for reality in broad daylight with the Bible open before them. Peter had such a mind when he wrote, quote, Our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, hath written unto us, as also to all his in all his epistles, speaking in them of these sayings, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they are unlearned and unstable rest, for they also they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. It is unlikely that the confirmed apostles of confusion will read what is written here, or that they will profit much if they did. But there are many sensible Christians who have been led astray 
but are humble enough to admit their mistake and are now ready to return to the shepherd and bishop of their souls. These may be rescued from false paths. More important still, there are undoubtedly large numbers of persons who have not left the true way, but who want a rule, a rule by which they can test everything and by which they can prove the quality of Christian teaching and experience as they come in contact with them day after day throughout their busy lives. For such as these, I make available here a little secret by which I tested my own spiritual experience and religious impulses for many years. Briefly stated, the test is this. This new doctrine, this new religious habit, this new view on truth, this new spiritual experience, how has it affected my attitude towards and my relationship to God, Christ, the Holy Scriptures, self, other Christians, and the world, and sin. By this sevenfold test, we may prove everything religious and know beyond a, a shadow of a doubt whether it is God or not. By the fruit of the tree, we know what kind of tree it is. So we have but to ask about any doctrine or experience, what is this doing to me? And we know immediately whether it is from above or from below. Number one, one vital test of all religious experience is how it affects our relation to God, our concept of God, and our attitude towards him. God being who he is must always be the supreme arbiter of all things religious. If the universe came into existence as a medium through which the creator might show forth his perfections to all moral and intellectual beings... I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, Isaiah 42.8. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created, Revelation 4.1. The health and balance of the universe requires that in all things God should be magnified. Great is the God, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. God acts only for his glory, and whatever comes from him must be to his own high honor. Any doctrine, any experience that serves to magnify him is likely to be inspired by him. Conversely, anything that veils his glory or makes him appear less wonderful is sure to be of the flesh or the devil. The heart of man is like a musical instrument that may be played upon by the Holy Spirit, by an evil spirit, or by the spirit of man himself. Religious emotions are very much the same, no matter who the player may be. Many enjoyable feelings may be aroused within the soul by low or even idolatrous worship. The nun who kneels breathless with adoration before the image of the Virgin, is having a genuine religious experience. She feels love, awe, and reverence, all enjoyable emotions, as certainly as if she were adoring God. The mystical experience of the Hindus or the Sufis cannot be brushed aside as mere pretense. Neither dare we dismiss the high religious flights of the spiritist or the occultist as imagination. These may have, and sometimes do have, genuine encounters with something or someone beyond themselves. 
In the same manner, manner, Christians are sometimes led into emotional experiences that are beyond their power to comprehend. I have met such, and they have inquired eagerly whether or not their experience was of God. The big test is, what has this done to my relationship to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? If this new view of truth, this new encounter with spiritual things, has made me love God more, if it has magnified him in my eyes, if it has purified my concept of his being and caused him to appear more wonderful than before, then I may conclude that I have not wandered astray into the pleasant but dangerous and forbidden paths of error. Number two, the next test is, how has this new experience affected my attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ? Whatever place present-day religion may give to Christ, God gives him top place in earth and in heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, spoke the voice of God from heaven concerning our Lord Jesus. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, declared, God hath made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Again, Peter said of him, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The whole book of Hebrews is devoted to the idea that Christ is above all others. He is shown to be above Aaron and Moses, and even the angels are called to fall down and worship him. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, that in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and that in all things he must have the preeminence. But time would fail me to tell of the glory accorded him by prophets, patriarchs, apostles, saints, elders, psalmists, kings, and seraphim. He is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is our hope, our life, our all in all, now and forever. All this being true, it is clear that he must stand at the center of all true doctrine, all acceptable practice, and all genuine Christian experience. Anything that makes him less than what God has declared him to be is delusion, pure and simple, and must be rejected no matter how delightful or how satisfying it may for a time seem to be. Christless Christianity sounds contradictory, but it exists as a real phenomenon in our day. Much that is being done in Christ's name is false to Christ in that it is conceived by the flesh, incorporates fleshly methods, and seeks fleshly ends. Christ is mentioned from time to time in the same way and in the same, for the same reason that a self-seeking politician mentions Lincoln and the flag to provide a sacred front for carnal activities and to deceive the simple-hearted listeners. This giveaway is that Christ is not central. He is not all in all. Again, there are psychic experiences that thrill the seeker and lead him to believe that he has indeed met the Lord and been carried to a third heaven. But the true nature of the phenomena is discovered later when the face of Christ begins to fade from the victim's consciousness and he comes to depend more and more on emotional jags as proof of his spirituality. If, on the other hand, the new experience tends to make Christ indispensable, If it takes our interest off our feelings 
and places them on Christ, we are on the right track. Whatever makes Christ dear to us is pretty sure to be from God. Another revealing test, number three, is the soundness of religious experience. How does it affect my attitude towards the Holy Scriptures? Did this new experience, this new view on truth, spring out of the Word of God itself? Or was it the result of some stimulus that lay outside the Bible? Tender-hearted Christians often become victims of strong psychological pressure applied intentionally or innocently by someone's personal testimony or by a colorful story told by a fervent preacher who may speak with prophetic finality but who has not checked his story with the facts or tested the soundness of his conclusions by the Word of God. Whatever originates outside the Scriptures should, for that very reason, be suspect until it can be shown to be in accord with them. If it should be found to be contrary to the word of revealed truth, no true Christian will accept it as being from God. However high the emotional content, no experience can be proved to be genuine unless we can find chapter and verse authority for it in the scriptures. To the word and to the testimony, quote-unquote, must always be the last and final proof. Whatever is new or singular should be viewed with a lot of caution until it can furnish scriptural proof of its validity. Over the last half century, quite a number of unscriptural notions have gained acceptance among Christians by claiming that they were among the truths that were to be revealed in the last days. To be sure, say the advocates of this latter daylight theory Augustine did not know, Luther did not know, John Knox, Wesley, Finney, Spurgeon did not understand this, but greater light has now shined upon God's people, and we of these last days have the advantage of a fuller revelation. We should not question the new doctrine or draw uh, back from its advanced experience. The Lord is getting his bride ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We should all yield to this new movement of the Spirit, or so they tell us. The truth is that the Bible does not teach that there will be new light and advanced spiritual experiences in the latter days. It teaches the exact opposite. Nothing in Daniel or the New Testament epistles can be tortured into advocating the idea that we of the end of the Christian era shall enjoy light that was not known at its beginning. Beware of any man who claims to be wiser than the apostles or holier than the martyrs of the early church. The best way to deal with him is to rise and leave his presence. You cannot help him, and he surely cannot help you. Granted, however, that the scriptures may not always be clear, and that there are differences of interpretation among equally sincere men, this test will furnish all the proof indeed for anything religious vis-a-vis what does it do to my love for and appreciation of Scripture? While true power lies not in the letter of the text, but in the spirit that inspired it, we should never underestimate the value of the letter. The text of truth has the same revelation to truth as the honeycomb has to the honey. One serves as a receptacle for the other. But there the analogy ends. The honey can be removed from the honeycomb, but the spirit of truth cannot and does not operate apart from the letter of the Holy Scripture. For this reason, a growing 
acquaintance with the Holy Spirit will always mean an increasing love for the Bible. The scriptures are in print what Christ is in person. The inspired word is like a faithful portrait of Christ. But again, the figure breaks down. Christ is in the Bible as no one can be in a mere portrait. For the Bible is a book of holy ideas, and the external word of the Father can and does dwell in the thought he has himself inspired. Thoughts are things, and the thoughts of the Holy Scripture form a lofty temple for the dwelling place of God. From this, it is it follows naturally that a true lover of God will also be a true lover of his word. Anything that comes to us from God of the word will deepen our love for the word of God. This follows logically. But we have confirmation by a witness vastly more trustworthy than logic vis-a-vis the concerted testimony of a great army of witnesses living and dead. These declare with one voice that their love for the scriptures intensified as their faith mounted and their obedience became consistent and joyous. If the new doctrine, the influence of that new teacher, that new emotional experience fills my heart with an avid hunger to meditate on the scriptures day and night, I have every reason to believe that God has spoken to my soul and that my experience is genuine. Conversely, if my love for the scriptures has cooled even a little, if my eagerness to eat and drink the inspired word has abated by as much as one degree, I should humbly admit that I have missed God's signal somewhere and frankly backtrack until I find the true way once more. Number four, again, we can provide or we can prove the quality of religious experience by its effect on self. The Holy Spirit and the fallen human self are diametrically opposed to one another. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would, Galatians 5.17. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be, Romans 8.5 and 7. Before the Spirit of God can work creatively in our hearts, he must condemn and slay the flesh within us. That is, he must have our full consent to displace our natural self with the person of Christ. This displacement is carefully explained in Romans 6, 7, and 8. When the seeking Christian has gone through the crucifying experience described in chapter 6 and 7, he enters into the broad free regions of chapter 8. There, self is dethroned, and Christ is enthroned forever. In the light of this, it is not hard to see why the Christian attitude towards self is such an excellent test of the validity of his religious experience. Most of the great masters of the deeper life, such as Fenelon, Molinus, John of the Cross, Madame Guyon, and a host of others have warned against pseudo-religious experiences that provide much carnal enjoyment but fill the flesh and puff up the heart with self-love. One rule is this. If this experience has served to humble me and to make me small and vile in my own eyes, it is of God. But if it has given me a feeling of self-satisfaction, 
It is false and should be dismissed as emanating from self or from the devil. Nothing that comes from God will minister to my pride or self-congratulations. If I am tempted to be complacent and to feel superior because I have had a remarkable vision or an advanced spiritual experience, I should go at once to my knees and repent of the whole thing. I have fallen victim to the enemy. Number five, our relationship to and our attitude towards our fellow Christians is another accurate test of religious experience. Sometimes an earnest Christian will, after some remarkable spiritual encounter, withdraw himself from his fellow believers and develop a spirit of fault-finding. He may be honestly convinced that his experience is superior that he is now in an advanced state of grace, and that the hoi polloi in the church where he attends are but a mixed multitude, and he alone a true son of Israel. He may struggle to be patient with these religious worldlings, but his soft language and condescending smile reveal his true opinion of them and of himself. This is a dangerous state of mind, and the more dangerous because it can justify itself by the facts. The brother had a remarkable experience. He has received some wonderful light on the scriptures. He has entered into a joyous land unknown to him before. And it may easily be true that the professed Christians with whom he is acquainted are worldly and dull and without spiritual enthusiasm. It is not that he is mistaken in his facts that proves him to be in error, but that his reaction to the facts is of the flesh. His new spirituality has made him less charitable. As Lady Julian tells us in her quaint English, how true Christian grace affects her attitude towards others, quote, For of all things, the beholding and loving of the Maker makes the soul to seem less in its own sight, and most filleth him with reverent dread and true meekness, with plenty of charity for his fellow Christians, unquote. Any religious experience that fails to deepen our love for our fellow Christians may safely be written off as spurious. The Apostle John makes love for our fellow Christians to be the test of true faith. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. 1 John 3, 18 and 19. Again, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. As we grow in grace, we grow in love towards God's people. Everyone that loveth him that begot, loveth him that is begotten of him, 1 John 5, 1. This means simply that if we love God, we will love his children also. All Christian experience will deepen our love for other Christians. Therefore, we conclude that whatever tends to separate us in person or in the heart from our fellow Christian is not of God, but is of the flesh or of the devil. And conversely, whatever causes us to love the children of God is likely to be of God. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you love one another. John 13.35 Number six. Another certain test of the source of religious experience is this. Note how it affects our relationship to and our attitude towards the world. 
By the world, I do not mean, of course, the beautiful order of nature, which God has created for the enjoyment of mankind. Neither do I mean the world of lost men in the sense used by our Lord when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, John 3, 16 and 17. Certainly, any true touch of God in the soul will deepen our appreciation of the beauties of nature and intensify our love for the lost. I refer here to something else entirely. Let an apostle say it for us. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.16 This is the world by which we test the spirits. It is a world of carnal enjoyments, of godless pleasures of the pursuit of earthly riches and reputation and sinful happiness. It carries on without Christ, following the counsel of the ungodly and being animated by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. It's religion in the form of godliness without power, which has a name to live but is dead. It is, in short, unregenerate human society romping on its way to hell, the exact opposite of the true church of God, which is a society of regenerate souls who soberly but joyfully are on their way to heaven. Any real work of God in our hearts will tend to unfit us for the world's fellowship. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.5 Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6.14 It may be stated unequivocally that any spirit that permits compromise with the world is a false spirit. Any religious movement that imitates the world in any of its manifestations is false to the cross of Christ and on the side of the devil, and this regardless of how much purring its leaders may do, accepting Christ or letting God run your business. Number seven, and lastly, the last test of the genuineness of Christian experience is what it does to our attitude towards sin. The operation of grace within the heart of a believing man will turn the heart away from sin and towards holiness. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 13. I do not see how it could be plainer. The same grace that saves teaches that saved man inwardly, and its teaching is both negative and positive. Negatively, it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Positively, it teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly right in this present world. The man of honest heart will find no difficulty here. He has but to check his own bent to discover whether he is concerned about sin in his life more or less since the supposed work of grace was done. Anything that weakens his hatred of sin may be identified immediately as false to the scriptures, to the Savior, and to his own soul.
Whatever makes holiness more attractive and sin more intolerable may be accepted as genuine. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, 4 through 5. Jesus warned, there shall arise false prophets, false Christs, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. These words describe our day too well to be coincidental. In the hope of the elect may profit by them, I have set forth these tests. The result is in the hand of God. So that's the paper that I wanted to share with you all. So let me go ahead and finish out with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that word. We thank you, Father, for the the paper that I just got finished reading. Father, there was a lot in there, and, and we thank you, Father, for just being able to digest it and understand it. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being able to walk circumspectly in this day and time. And, Father, that you have called us not to be fools but wise. And I thank you, Father, that we can be clear-minded, clear-hearted as we go through this this wonderful path, our walk on this path that you've called us to walk on. So I thank you for these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Satisfied, oh, satisfied.